Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. This is John Green, and I'm your host. Thanks for tuning in today and being with me. I appreciate that. Here we are in the middle of January. We are three or four days away from uh, an inauguration of a new president in America. So we've got change on the horizon. Big things are coming. Who knows what's going to go on this week? It should be an interesting week. There's a lot of chatter about a lot of different stuff. Washington's never seen anything like this. Barbed wire fences and 25,000 troops in Washington. Doesn't sound good. Sounds ominous uh, that they feel a need for that. Again, I'm going to remind you that what we as Christians should be focusing on, no matter what side of the political aisle we might be on, is is the coming of not this kingdom, but of God's kingdom. We can't put our trust in rulers. We've been told that in Psalm 110. They're very clear that we're not to put our trust in rulers and princes and authorities. We need to keep our eyes fixed on the coming of the kingdom. And so I want to talk about that idea today. And what does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom? What does it mean to be um, a child of God? And it's very clear in John that if we believe in Jesus, that's what gives us the right to become children of God. Jesus is very clear about that in John 3, in fact. So it's been, I don't know, we haven't done much this week, to be honest with you. It's been kind of a quiet week for some reason. I'm not quite sure why. We had a nice dinner with friends last night, a group of folks that we get together with about once a month. I've got another good friend coming over today to hang out for a while and talk about the kingdom. He's a guy who's been to 40 different countries um, doing mission work in all those places. And so I'm excited to see him today. That's going to be a good afternoon together. But I've got to get out. I'm tired of being cooped up in the house. It's time to get out in the woods and do some walking, get busy. Um, was able finally, after all this time, to start working out again this week. I got some heavy bands and started working out and doing some things, and it feels so good just to be physically active and uh, excited about the opportunity to try a different way of working out for a little while until until you can go to the gym without wearing a mask. In fact, I just can't do that. I can't squat heavy and do the things that I do at the gym wearing a mask. I, I don't breathe correctly anyway when, I, when I'm there. I tend to not breathe well. And so sometimes when I finish squats and deadlifts, I feel like I'm just about to pass out. Um, so not doing that for a little while. But now here we go with this week, which is the second Sunday after Epiphany. And so what we start with is a Psalm 139, which if you were in and around Pauly's Island when we were, uh, you'd be very, very familiar with. There was a ministry based out of there. started out being called Women in Discipleship, and then it changed to Call to Discipleship. Um, but it was led by um, a wonderful deacon of ours named Erilyn Barnum. It was a town of about 10,000 people. There ended up being about 700 people involved in that ministry. Erilyn died within the last year. Great loss for the kingdom. Wonderful teacher. Just had this incredible charism with teaching women. And it just, they gathered around her. And it was exciting to see that happen while we were there. Um, and see that change in, in that. But she was gracious beyond belief in her ministry. She brought other women in, raised them up, and taught them. She did it, what she did really, really well. She had, uh, there were groups of leaders for the, they, there would be a main talk, and then it would divide into small groups, and she raised up a huge number of small group leaders and, and would teach them on Tuesdays and then do the main thing on Thursday. And even though, 
our sanctuary held about 400 people, um, ended up, it outgrew that. And so we moved over to the community church because the, there were women from all the churches in Pauly's Island there. It was a great time there because there was so much ministry happening among churches, churches coming together and doing things. We had uh, Bible school at uh, at All Saints Pauly's where we were, and that community church, which was bigger than we were, didn't have it. They had another program they did during the summer, and so all those kids would come, and half our volunteers would be from that church. And then the youth groups actually got together and combined to be one between those two church churches. My wife Suzanne was in uh, kids ministry, and they combined. They didn't combine for kids ministry, but they did uh, summer trips together and went to camp together. And so it was a wonderful time of, of great ministry cooperation between two fantastic churches. And so whenever one thirty nine comes up as the psalm, I'm always just um, thrilled because it, it brings back so many great memories. And so. Here, it's going to read part of, not all of, 139. Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You trace my journeys and my resting places and are acquainted with all my ways. Indeed, there's not a word on my lips, but you, O Lord, know it altogether. You press upon me behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's so high that I cannot attain to it. And it's just marveling at, at the love of God. The, the knowledge that God has, the intimate knowledge that God has of us. And then it goes on, we skip a few verses here and then go down to verse 12. For you yourself created my inmost parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I'll thank you because I'm marvelously made. Your works are wonderful and I know it well. My body was not hidden from you while I was being made in secret and woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes behold my limbs yet unfinished in the womb. All of them are written in your book. They were fashioned day by day, when as yet there was none of them. How deep I find your thoughts, O God, how great is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would be more in number than the sand. To count them all, my lifespan would need to be like yours. And so there's a reciprocity in that, that, that marvels because God knows us so well, and yet at the end says, how deep I find your thoughts. Oh God, how great is the sum of them. And so there's a, a thing that goes back to what I was speaking about a few weeks ago. And that is, is that, that the belief that we can know God's thoughts, we can think God's thoughts after Him because we were made in His image. And therefore, we are capable of understanding God's thoughts. And to, to even imagine that is too much for most of us to deal with but Kepler that was his whole uh, way of thinking about why he did science is that we can because we're made in his image and created and gifted with reason and consciousness that's unique to humanity that we're we're able actually to think God's thoughts as well he's able to communicate with us in ways that that it's impossible to communicate with any other kind of created being and so there's something truly exciting about that, that he knows us so well, but at the same time, we were created to know him. And so we can marvel at both those things simultaneously. Today, I'm going to start with a gospel, and it's John 1, 43 to 51. It says that next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. 
Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And remember, he's already called some of the disciples who came and followed after him and then wanted to know where he was staying. And then they stayed with him and, and became part of Jesus's group. They were probably, well, in fact, we know they were John's disciples and they followed Jesus. And then because they were intrigued because John was pointing to Jesus. And so thereafter, they, they attached themselves to Jesus as his disciples. And that's an important part of what we're going to talk about today. And so he called, Jesus here calls Philip, and he's from the same place. And he found Nathanael, his friend, and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. In other words, all of Scripture points to this one, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael's response was, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And people looked at that as you're on the edge of uh, the land and you're, you're further from Jerusalem. And the belief was is that they were more compromised than anybody else. They were more Roman than the rest of the land. And so Philip says to him, come and see. See if anything good can come out of Nazareth. And then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Behold, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So I want to reflect a little bit on that, that, the exchange between Jesus and Nathaniel. An Israelite indeed, in whom there's no deceit. Remember that Israel was a proper name. It was the name given to the forefather, Jacob, at the fort of Jabbok as he went back and sort of hid himself from his brother Esau, who the last he had heard was trying to kill him. And why was he trying to kill him? because of deceit. And so it's after he becomes Israel, there at the Ford Jabbok, that Jacob then moves to the front of the procession going to meet his brother. And he moves towards him with boldness, not shame or fear. And so to be an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit is is one who is a true Israelite because Jacob's deceit was supposed to have ended when he became Israel because Jacob means the supplanter, the deceiver. So Jesus is pointing to Nathanael as a true Israelite, a man who will speak his mind and say what's there. And Nathanael just wants to know how Jesus, how do you know who I am? And then Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And he's a rabbi. You're the son of God, the king of Israel. Reflect back then on that Psalm 139, how wonderful it is that you know me the way you do. And so that Jesus knows him before he ever saw him is the thing that excites Nathaniel here in this place. And so... And Jesus says, you're going to see a lot more than that, big boy. You're going to see what your ancestor Jacob saw, angels of God ascending and descending, but not on the place, the place that becomes 
a worship spot. No, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the one to be worshipped. It's an exciting and an unusual thing to say, to say the least. And, and you can just imagine what Nathaniel was thinking when, when he was told that. That had to have opened his eyes and made him think, huh, am I following the right guy? Because he just made one humongous claim. And so he came and he saw. And what he found was the one that is the Messiah, because that's what he said, Rabbi, first, teacher, you're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. There's only one true king, and there's no king of Israel at that time. So to say that he is the king of Israel is to say you're the one, I believe, already that you are the Messiah, the one who is to come, and you know me. The woman at the well in John 4 sees that same kind of thing, that Jesus knows her. And it's a wonderful thing, but nothing so wonderful as proof of knowledge as at the resurrection when Jesus speaks Mary's name. It just makes you weep even to think about it. He speaks your name as well. And we've got to embrace that reality of who we are and how known we are. He's not like Santa. You know, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. No, he knows you and he loves you. He knows you because he loves you, because he chooses to know you. And so now I'm going to go from there, how marvelous that is in the words of the psalmist and then also in Nathaniel's eyes. And now we go to the Old Testament lesson, which is First Samuel 3, the first 20 verses. So now the boy Samuel, now remember Samuel was given to the Lord by his mother because she received him from God because she prayed and, and implored the Lord to give her a child. And then the old priest was standing at the door, Eli, and he thought she was drunk because she saw he saw her lips move, but he didn't hear her prayer. And she was praying that the Lord would send her a son and so she went from being childless to a mother of a child, but she gave him immediately to God. That was her pledge. The oath that she took was, if God gives me this son, I'll give him to you. And so she gave him to Samuel when he was weaned, or to Eli when he was weaned. And so he had been living with Eli. His mother would come and bring him clothes every year when they made the pilgrimage to what was then the worship center, which was in Shiloh. And so she would bring him clothes then. So she still continued to have contact with him. But... He, nonetheless, he lived at there at the temple with Eli and his worthless sons. His sons were worthless for a couple of reasons. They dallied with the women who came there to worship. They were faithless priests. And then the other thing they did was they took the best part of the sacrifices for themselves, that which was intended for God, they took for themselves and took it out of the pot. And so now here we come in first samuel 3 now the boy samuel was ministering to the lord in the presence of eli and the word of the lord was rare in those days there was no frequent vision that's laying the groundwork for this guy eli the chief priest wasn't actually doing much other than the ceremonial things that were required of him 
the word of the Lord was rare and there was no frequent vision. And then this vision thing plays itself out a little bit more too. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he couldn't see, was lying down in his own place. So we go from there, the word of the Lord was rare. There was no frequent vision to the man, the chief priest, whose vision is going away. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. So here again, we've got the light of God. It had not yet gone out, which is implying that it's very early in the morning, that it's that it's nearing uh, dawn, in fact, because the lamp's been burning all night and has not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. That's a difficult thing to figure out. He shouldn't certainly shouldn't be where the ark is. But he's in the temple of the Lord somewhere, and, and we're not quite sure where. But we know that he's not with Eli. So then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. He didn't know who was calling him. He had no idea. And Eli says, I didn't call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down, and the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli again and said, Here I am, for you called me. And the first time he ran. <laughs> this time he just arose and went. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. He lives in the temple with the priest. And he doesn't know the Lord. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he rose and went to Eli again and said, Here I am, for you called me. And is he playing a joke on him? Is it a practical joke or whatever? And so Eli perceived, again, sight, vision, perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. So he at least had some understanding of the way of God, no matter how dim that might be. And then Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So at least he knew how to respond when God spoke. And, and then Samuel went and lay down again in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by his sacrifice or offering forever. It's a horrible thing to hear, but Eli's guilty. He knows what his sons are doing, and he wouldn't stop them. And they were serving as priests under him in the temple. And so that's a sin of a high hand. It's a sin that they do knowingly and willingly. And they know they're committing a great sin by taking from the sacrifice. And so there's no atonement in Judaism that can be made for those, such sins with a high hand. So there's nothing that's going to to atone for that sin and it's because they represent God to the people and so in the way you represent God to the people you can blaspheme against him Jesus says blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin in Christianity and so here we have 
Eli's family blaspheming against the Lord because they're misrepresenting him. And they're saying to, to the people and the people, the message the people would receive is, is, is that, that all this stuff doesn't matter all that much. If it did, the priests would at least take it seriously, and they're not. And so after this word comes, Samuel lay until morning, and it doesn't say he slept. <laughs> He opened the doors of the house of the Lord as part of his job was to, to begin to the day by welcoming the people back to the temple after daybreak. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Well, I bet he was. And then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. You see those three words over and over and over throughout Scripture. And he's already said it three times. And Eli said, what was it he told you? Don't hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. Can you imagine this boy serving in the temple, serving under this priest, now having to give that word to him about his own family, that they're going to lose everything, and they'll never be heard from again within the priestly line. And he said everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Well, at least he recognized that. He didn't stand before the Lord and say, I didn't do this. I didn't see that. Didn't you see earlier in this passage that my eyesight had grown dim? I didn't even see this thing that happened. He doesn't say that at all. He acknowledges not only his own guilt, but in so doing, he acknowledges his son's guilt and his own knowledge of that guilt and then we don't hear about Eli again Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord the, the, he's not the priest of the Lord at that point he's a prophet of the Lord so the Lord has spoken to him and through him and he's a faithful prophet because no matter what the personal cost to him might have been he told the truth he faithfully reported what God has seen but the beauty in this is is that boy who it says he did not yet know the Lord called him by name had no idea who he was and Samuel was known by God by name and so he receives this call and then he's faithful with that word and that's a key thing can God trust you if he tells you something, if he shows you something, if he calls you to something, can he trust you with what he gives you? And with Samuel, he proved that indeed that he could because what we're told is Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from the priest. But he knew him by name even though Samuel knew him not. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And so there's a new day now that comes in Israel. The people began to see and proclaim Samuel as a prophet of the Lord. And so there's a power in that that comes with Samuel's faithful service to God and faithful um, faithfulness to the Word of God. And we know there's a power in that because we see in multiple places after that, including when, when Samuel goes to see Jesse after he's already anointed Saul, and, he, and Saul has sinned, and, and Saul is afraid when Samuel shows up to confront him in his sin. 
of, with not destroying utterly the Amalekites, Saul's afraid of him, and he makes excuses for his sins. And then David is going to go to Jesse, and, and when he goes to these places, people are, are afraid, and, the, and they say, are you here for peace? Yeah, I'm just here to do my job. Um, but, but there's a power inherent in faithful servants, in, in those who are faithful with the word of the Lord. There's a power there that's different. And so that's Samuel. But Samuel was known by the Lord. And because he was known by the Lord and responded to the Lord and was faithful to the Lord, then he began to know more and more. There's a key to that. And the key is responding with wonder and awe and love to God's knowledge of us. Just like Nathaniel did. Jesus said, because you have proclaimed me in this way, at this very small piece of knowledge that I have about you, you'll see greater things than these. If we'd see greater things, then we've got to be faithful with the small things if we want to see those things. So now we move on to 1 Corinthians passage, which is our epistle for today. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. And Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food's meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. And, and what Paul's saying here is don't be a glutton, but you could apply that to all kinds of other things. He just chooses that one thing at the beginning because he gives lists of things otherwise. So I, I, I'm not going to allow food to take over my life. I'm not going to become an Epicurean. But he's also saying something truly important here, and he begins saying it right here, and that is my body matters. So we're not just spirit. Paul's tearing that idea to shreds right here, that, that we're not some sort of embodied spirit. No, 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 those two things are together. They're not two separate things. My body actually matters in this. It's, it's a way of worshiping God the way I treat my body. I shouldn't let my body go to pieces. In other words, I'm saying to myself, John, you've got to lose about 20 pounds because during this COVID thing, I've let other things more dominate me. And so it's it's... As we head in towards Lent, that's the point of Lent in so many ways, is to say that all things are lawful for me, but I won't be dominated by anything. And it's a recognition of, of what is dominating my life. You know, Look at your life. Assess it honestly and brutally honestly and, and say there's some stuff that's got to go if I'm going to actually move back in this other direction. Maybe it's, it's food. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's cigars. But maybe... It's how we spend our time more than anything else. Is where am I investing my time and my energy? And where is it being depleted and keeping me from fully serving Him? And so he goes on to say, uh, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord <coughs> and will also raise us up by His power. And again, here we go back to the body. It's important that we understand the, the importance of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. The body matters. That's the point of the whole bodily resurrection. And we know it's a bodily resurrection because he shows it. Most notably to Thomas. Put your hand in my side. Feel the holes in my hand. And he says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or don't you know that he who is joined with a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it's written, the two will become one flesh. And physiologically and biologically, there's a truth in that, actually, that sex does unite people in some interesting, real, physical ways, not just an idea of, oh, I love you because we've had sex. No, there's a physical thing that happens that bonds those people together at some level. But he who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. So your body's a great gift because it is the temple of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And so we're supposed to to flee sexual immorality and not be dominated by anything at all because we've been joined to the Lord be made one with him no less than Samuel was made one with him in his in the call and his faithful speaking of God's word we confess Jesus Christ as Lord and in so doing we are made one with him and that's intended to change us body mind and spirit we are to be made one with Him. And He is holy, therefore we are to be holy. He says, you're not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The body matters. We've been made one with Christ in His death, resurrection, and ascension. Through baptism we share in His death. We, because we share in His death, we share in His life. You've been given a great gift. God knows you so intimately that He sent His only begotten Son to die on a cross for your sins that you might take on His righteousness and therefore you might be given the great gift of eternal life. You know how much God loves you more than David did when he wrote that psalm. Because you know a secret David didn't know. A secret that Paul talked about a couple of weeks ago that was revealed only in the time of Jesus. That the atonement for sin and the gift of eternal life comes in the form of his son. So if David could marvel and wonder and love the Lord because of what he knew, how much more can we love him for what we know, which is greater than anything David ever knew? You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm thrilled that you're here with me today, and I pray that you continue to be uh, part of this. And if there's anything that I can do or anything I can pray for, just let me know through that Facebook page. God bless you, and have a wonderful week.